Hello, I'm Lucy, and this is Footnoting History. In this week's episode, I'll be discussing Beguines, their beginnings, and what religious women did in 13th century Europe. I'm very excited to talk about Beguines this week, as questions of how the religious life was defined in late medieval Europe and how people came to be acknowledged as religious men and women are particularly interesting to me. So my sincere thanks to the listener who suggested the topic. I would also like to ask for the indulgence of all listeners as I'm going to try to synthesize over a century of scholarly debate as well as offering my perspective on a historically complicated question in approximately 15 minutes. Wish me luck! In discussing what it meant to be a Beguine, I'm going to focus primarily on the 13th century, or the 1200s, in which Beguines begin to be mentioned, and in which, not coincidentally, the terms of what it meant to lead the religious life were debated and redefined. In the early 1200s, the Benedictines were still the religious order that had defined communal religious life in Western Christendom for much of the preceding centuries. However, even the Cistercian order, at about a century old, was no longer quite the new kid on the block. As many European societies became more prosperous and more urbanized, there was more clearly a worldly life against which religious communities might define themselves, and a number of new orders were established. Examples include the Carthusians, the Templars, and the Gilbertines of Fontrevaux, who included men and women in connected houses. Beyond these organized orders, There were others who tried to lead religious lives in the world rather than apart from it. There were numerous lay religious movements, such as the Waldensians, founded by a penitent merchant, or the Cathars. Such groups, lacking organization and prominently featuring people who didn't seek or require approval to go about preaching about doctrine, were viewed by ecclesiastical authorities as an acute spiritual danger to the population at large. So Beguines found themselves in a difficult position. The Franciscans, founded by a penitent merchant, flourished with ecclesiastical acknowledgement and its attendant legal privileges. The Waldensians did not. So what were lay religious women like the Beguines, those who hadn't necessarily taken vows, to do? The Beguines found many answers to this question. Some Beguines took vows some of the time. Beguine houses might acquire religious status, but they might not. Beguines might travel or live in small groups or in sizable, purpose-built urban complexes. Never did they acquire the sort of permanent, vowed status that distinguished more formal orders. There was no single way, however, of being a Beguine. This has often confounded modern scholars. Trying to figure out what Beguines did has proved at least as perplexing for historians as it was for 13th century church officials. And contemporary confusion is compounded because scholars of the 19th and early 20th centuries sometimes tended to use the word Begin for any women living a religious life outside an acknowledged religious order. To take two examples concerning late 13th century evidence, the women managing the Hospital of St. Agnes in Mainz, according to one 19th century historian, were a Begin-like group. It's also been claimed that the women associated with a chapel managed by the same city's leper hospital were Begins. 
But we don't have direct evidence that either these women themselves or those living around them would have called them Beguines, although the residents of the city clearly knew who and what Beguines were. Lita Böhringer, working on careful identification of Beguines, has warned against this common pattern of assuming Beguines' institutional connection with care for the poor and sick, though Beguines did undertake such charitable work on individual or communal initiative. These examples both come from Mainz, the city at the heart of the ecclesiastical province for which we have some of the most extensive evidence for legislation concerning Beguines. In the 1230s and 1240s, several synods talked with disapproval about women who wore religious habits and wandered around despite not having correct religious status. The second version of these statutes identified such women as Beguines. But the formal and apparently categorical Latin of these statutes illustrates several of the challenges of historians looking at the medieval religious life. Does this language indicate that all women called Beguines were thought of as wandering around, falsely claiming the status of religious women? Does it mean that only those Beguines who were wandering around, rather than staying put in one place, as religious men and especially women were typically expected to do, were censured? What relation did these wandering women bear to those called Beguines in the statutes of cities from the region, those women, in other words, who were living and praying together in small communities and entering into contracts with laypersons and institutions? As prescriptive sources, the statutes of Fritzlar and similar legal texts tell us about the goals and attitudes of ecclesiastical authorities. But there's a lot they don't tell us about the lives of women known as Beguines and how they interacted with their neighbors. Texts that do tell us about Beguines' activities and relationships are far more unassuming. We learn about their activities often incidentally, of how they helped to tend the sick, to bury the dead, of how women from the same family network or from diverse social backgrounds might come together in community. Those who most frequently helped to support the Beguines through their donations were the non-noble members of the laity, and they gave not only their coins, but cloaks and candles and other such items, gifts tailored to the needs of the communities themselves. Such pieces of evidence, small though they are, are among my favorites, suggesting close relationships between Beguines and those who were their neighbors and friends. The identity of Beguines and Beguin houses was not dependent on an organized order like that of the Benedictines or the Cistercians. Beguin houses were often personal foundations taking shape in a semi-formal way. As you can imagine, this tends to make finding records of Beguines particularly challenging without an infrastructure dedicated specifically to keeping their records. When I've done archival research, I've often come across mentions of individual Beguines or Beguine houses, as if everyone knows about them, and everyone in the canonries and hospitals and law courts responsible for making the records probably did. But I don't, and every historian who tries to research Beguines comes across similar problems. In the German city of Zoest in 1310, all female hospital residents were ordered to dress according to the custom of Beguines. This data point is one more example of how hard it is to pin down Beguines, but also of how the prescriptive documents concerning them can never tell the whole story. It suggests, at least to me, that the Beguines and Hospital Sisters of Zoest were perceived as doing similar work and having a similar religious or quasi-religious identity. 
A single mention in a charter might be the only thing that survives to tell historians that a group of three women lived together in a commercial district, renting out one floor of a house to devote themselves to poverty and prayer. A gift of a cloak to a church fund could be the only thing to tell us of what might have been decades of an individual woman's life as a Beguine. Those who wrote about Beguines from within the church wrote about them as holy women, and the typecasting of these holy women, if you will, in narrative documents like the famous Life of Marie Douigny, who is often referred to as a Beguine, tell us perhaps little about the lives of Beguines, but much about how Beguines wished to be perceived, or how their supporters thought they should be received. Much emphasis is laid on their fasting, on their embrace of poverty, on their embrace of chastity, good values, in other words, to be embraced by religious women, indicating that they were not simply seeking an easy life by pretending to be religious women, as church law sometimes claimed they did. The papal bull Ad Nostrum, issued after the Council of Vienne in 1311 and 1312, was intended to refine the understanding of Beguine as a label and prevent the prosecution and persecution of orthodox women and acceptable Beguines. This document, however, never became integrated in law curriculum, so it's very hard to know what sort of impact it had. Pope Clement V, who presided over the Council of Vienne, wrote a famous or infamous decree declaring that, quote, since certain women, commonly known as Beguines, neither promise obedience to anyone nor renounce personal property, nor profess any rule, they are by no means considered religious. The document goes on to declare that no, wearing a habit does not mean that Beguines are religious. No, the fact that they have close personal relationships with religious persons does not mean that they are religious. And the fact that they preach about the nature of the Trinity is not only not evidence that they are religious, but may be taken as evidence of a kind of madness. But the decree itself, as is so often the case with prescriptive documents, offers considerable evidence for the fact that Beguines were taken seriously as religious women, and offered support as such by religious persons and priests as well as the laity. And even in the 14th century, questions of how Beguines were regarded and regulated were often resolved at the local level. Scholars are still asking themselves, or I should say, perhaps we are still asking ourselves, Questions like, to what extent were lay religious women like Beguines, not formally vowed to a community or order, normally called Beguines by those around them? What terms and labels did contemporaries in a given place apply to such lay religious women? How did the women refer to themselves? As historians, we keep experimenting with good ways to study Beguines. Imposing modern categories doesn't work. Attempts to stick closely to medieval categories usually end in some confusion, due to the flexible use of language. We find the term begin in Latin and in vernacular languages, but no one agrees on how it got started or just what it means. Moreover, those referred to as begins sometimes are referred to with other words as well. Those referred to as cloistered women were often not strictly cloistered, and the term sister might be used to imply religious status in a spiritual rather than a legal sense. Moreover, the significance of regional variation can hardly be overstated. Jennifer Dean has suggested that in the German lands particularly, 
men and women might use language flexibly on purpose to maintain local lay religious structures without overtly challenging church authorities and the increasing structures of legal theory. Offering a single systematic answer to the question of what it meant to be a begin is something that the women themselves never tried to do. The very nature of their movement worked against it. In small houses and in large communities, making cloth, caring for the sick, helping the poor, these women formed a usually accepted part of 13th century cities, a known part of late medieval landscapes. They both shaped and were shaped by a time when the definition of what it meant to live as a religious person was changing. This has been Footnoting History. If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com, where you can find links to further reading suggestions related to this week's episode, as well as a calendar of upcoming podcasts. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at History Footnote. Until next time, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes.